Okay, tonight we're in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses there as we lead into this book and um, uh, talk about this tonight. There are 16 chapters in Romans, and um, the, um, let me get my switch on here, this will work right. Um, the book of Romans, the theme of it is righteousness by faith. This is, uh, many call this the Christian's Declaration of Independence and Constitution. This is a great book of doctrine, and you would do well to study any time the book of Romans, to read through it and to take your time going through it. There's so much in there, and then like any of the books in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, uh, there's so many places in Romans that you can see cross-references to other uh, Paul's other letters, as well as to um, the Gospels, and then also, of course, to the Old Testament, because there's a great deal of Old Testament quoted in the book of Romans. And so um, this is the book of, of um, uh, the theme, Righteousness by Faith. Righteousness is, is seen 39 times in the book of Romans, and it's in its 16 chapters. Uh, there are 39 times that it is mentioned. And so um, that's uh, the key word found there. The two key verses, um, actually start at verse 1 and then we'll skip over to, um, to verse 16 and 17 that are our key verses. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So as Paul begins his letter, he addresses uh, uh, the uh, believers there in Rome and uh, the church there, churches, I guess you said, but the church, uh, the believers at Rome and addresses them. Um, and uh, introduces himself to them. He's not yet um, not yet been to Rome uh, as he writes this letter, and we'll see that in just a second. But um, the key verses are in verse 16 and 17, where Paul says, and these are good verses to memorize, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And there he's quoting from the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk. When we studied Habakkuk several uh, weeks, a month or two back, a month or so back, we looked at the book of Habakkuk and we looked at that verse there. That's in chapter 2 and verse 4 of Habakkuk. So uh, those are the key verses to it. He's not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel that he once uh, fought against in, in persecuting the uh, Believers persecuting the church, he believed the gospel, and now he's a believer himself, and so he's not ashamed of it. Sixteen chapters in the book of Romans. Um, we studied last week Acts, so I thought that being kind of maybe fresh in your mind, the events of Acts go from about thirty-three to sixty-five A.D., and most um, most of the the writers and commentators and uh, uh, so forth say that they figure Paul wrote this about fifty-eight A.D. On his third missionary journey, we looked at the uh, looked at those in our study in Acts last week, and so it was probably written on his third missionary journey. After his third missionary journey, he took some call it his fourth missionary journey. You can call it that, but he was basically heading to Rome then. So this was written before he visits them. And when you read the book of Romans, you can see that he's not yet been there, and he talks about how he wants to to be there, and he refers to it, I think, in the last chapter. A little bit. This is a quick, just a five-part um, uh, outline, uh, five major um, points of outline of the book of Romans. It's not a clean um, 
cut, except, well, the first two sections aren't, the first two points, but the third, third, fourth, and fifth are. Um, but chapter 1, verse 3 to 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, get that right, gives us uh, an overview of all of humanity's need for salvation. We'll refer to it a little bit when we go a little deeper in a moment, but basically it says, first of all, the whole world's guilty before God. Then it talks about how all the Gentiles are guilty before God. And then it says that uh, the Jews, Israel, they're all guilty before God. So everybody is guilty before God. Now, when it mentions the Gentiles in the world, um, uh, it's not that they're not the same, but it's the fact that um, he mentions the whole world first, which would include Israel, uh, you know, the Jews, but then he, he specifically talks about Gentiles and talks about the, about Jews, the Jews. So chapter 1, ver, uh, down, down through chapter 3, verse 20, talks about everybody's need for salvation. Everybody needs salvation that God offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end, actually 521 is the end of chapter 5. So going from 321 to the end of chapter 5, is God's method of salvation. That's grace, by grace through faith. And so uh, we'll come back to some passages about that in, in just a few moments. Chapter 6 through 8 talks about the results and the blessings of salvation. That because we're saved, it, it tells us uh, in those chapters some very important results and, and, and blessings and truths of the Christian life. Because we're saved, um, it, it does talk about the main problem that we all have to deal with after we're saved, just as we did before, but now is a different way to deal with it, and that's the problem of sin. Before you're saved, you have a sin debt that, there's, that separates you from God. After you're saved, we have to deal daily with um, the temptation that's, of, of sin. And so we'll look at that in just a little bit uh, tonight as we, we go on through and look at some um, stop and take some scenic routes. Chapters 9 through 11 talk about Israel's past, present, and future. And the, just as there are three chapters, that's what it talks about. 9 deals mostly with their past. Chapter 10 deals with their present right now. And then chapter 11 talks about their future, um, uh, what's to come, that God is not finished with Israel. In fact, um, a couple of Sundays ago, in our Sunday morning when I was preaching about in our, our prophecy series, um, I um, used some verses there. We looked at some verses from that chapter and talked about how God's in that, He's not yet through with Israel. He still has uh, plans for them in His in the future, in their future. Then chapters twelve to sixteen, there uh, that's uh, five chapters at the end of the uh, of the book, and it deals with with just salvation and pr practical Christian living. Because we're saved. Now, 6 through 8 talks about some, some of the practical Christian living, but especially when you get to chapter 12 through the end of the book, it talks about practical Christian living, practical Christian life. Um, and so we'll look at some highlights on that too in just a few moments. Uh, so let's take the scenic route and let's look first at chapter 1, where we talked about in that first, um, first point, humanity's need for salvation. Uh, we're, we all need God's salvation, and so we're going to break this down and look at it a little bit. So because of that, God has made himself known to the world. Way back before we had a Bible, way back before Jesus was even born, God had a way to, to communicate to mankind, uh, had, had ways to communicate to mankind. And so we'll look at the two that's mentioned in Scripture concerning that. Look at chapter 1, verse 18, if you will. Um, it's right after the two key verses we just read a while ago. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. How has he done that? How has God showed the world without a Bible, without even Jesus being born? Um, and then even now in this day, even after Jesus has been born and his, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and after we have 66 books that we know as a Bible, how does God still reveal himself to those who maybe uh, their language does not have scripture or they live in a very remote area, which is becoming less and less as time goes by, but nevertheless, there's still those who fit this category. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there's one uh, first light that God gives and makes available to everybody, Jew and Gentile, from way back at creation all the way through, and that is uh, the light of the fact that he's created everything. Um, you could put in parentheses maybe the light of nature, if you want to use that too, but it's the light of creation, the fact that um, you can look out and you can see all around you uh, all you know, the trees, all nature, everything around you, and how every day it doesn't change. Well, it changes the sense of seasons, colors of leaves, but you know, in general, it doesn't change. Those trees are there. I mean, you cut them down, but I mean, trees are there. The, the, the ground is there. You look out and you see the sky. Sometimes maybe it's a rainy day or a cloudy day, but nevertheless, you're, you're able to look up and you see the sky above you. And some days you see sunny days and cloudy days and so forth. But God has revealed himself through his creation. And so it says the invisible things, verse 20, um, of him from the creation are clearly seen being understood so that they were without excuse. So the first light he gives to all of humanity, Jew or Gentile, anybody, is the light of creation. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Um, several verses in that psalm uh, talk about the, uh, the sun has its course and, and how it, it moves in its motion and its course. Um, psalm 19 that's just the first verse, but I'm going to reference here on, this, on the slide. It's got verse 1 to 3. But the first verse says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. You look out and you see everything around you. You see that it's a constant in the sense that, you know, you know even though there are changes in seasons, you look out, those stars are going to be there unless it's cloudy or rainy or something like that. Those stars are going to be there. The moon, the sun, they're, going to, they're constant day after day, uh, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Uh, from Psalm 113, verse 3, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And so um, whenever someone sees a sunrise, sees a sunset, the next day, the same cycle, the next day, the same cycle. Well, how did that get here? Something, something had to make that. Something had to create that. And even, you know, even the, the person in the depths of a jungle somewhere that maybe, uh, you know, can't even read, they know they have the light of creation that God has created everything. So God gives everyone that light. Now, the light of creation can't save anybody. Only Jesus Christ can save, but there is the light of creation to know that there is a God and God, uh, puts, and we'll get to the next one in a moment, but because of creation, it leads to the next one we'll see, and that is conscience. When you know that there's a creator, um, unless someone tries to deceive you in some way about that, you're going to want to find out who did that. How did that happen? Who did that? 
Because God puts within, I believe, in every human being a desire to know him. And then there are, there are forces such as our enemy and those who would try to deceive us that may squelch those out, that may drown those out. But I believe every person is born with a desire to know who made this. Why did they make this? How did this get? How did I get here? And every person, I believe, regardless of their language, th- those thoughts come to their mind at some point. So God gives the light of creation. Um, go with me to Acts for just a moment. We, we were there last week, and maybe kind of still fresh on your mind a little bit. But go to Acts 17. I don't want to get this too long because we've got a lot to look at tonight. Uh, Acts 17, look at verse 16. Paul is on uh, one of his missionary journeys. And here, um, he's, he's, um, he stops uh, in, he's, he's in the area, the, the, the country of Greece, basically. So he goes in that area to, uh, he makes his way through Thessalonica, which he later writes a, a, a letter to them. And then he ends up in, in uh, Athens, Greece. Pick up at verse 16. And it says, now while Paul departed and waited for them in Athens, so those traveling with him, Silas and the others traveling with him, they went another direction for a while. And Paul ended up going to, to in, while they were in Greece, to Athens. Uh, Timothy and Silas had departed, verse 15, from him for a while to go somewhere else. Then he was going to meet up with them later. Waited for them in Athens. His spirit was stirred in him when he saw... The city was wholly given, that's a W-H-O-L-L-Y, that's holy as in completely, given to idolatry, verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. So when he was among with the Jews in the synagogue, likely he talked to them concerning the scriptures. But then when you look down... Uh, the next couple of verses, you see, you see where he confronts some of the people of Athens, some of the Greeks that were basically studied um, the philosophers of their day. Um, it mentions two, two different philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so he, is, um, he, he uh, conf- uh, comes across those men, those people that are, that are philosophers there. And they wanted to hear what he had to say, verse 18, because it says that he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. Go with me down to verse 24 now. Follow me there. They had all these idols that they made. Um, these, some, some of these idols may have represented the different philosophies and what they believed. But look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. When Paul come across any place where there was a synagogue where Jews would worship, he would begin with the Scripture and and read the Scripture to them. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament. They were taught it from the time they were little. They knew the Old Testament. But any time he came across someone who was a Gentile, he would, rather than going to the Scripture, which they really knew nothing about, he would talk about creation. He would begin about and talk about how God created everything. Then he would make his way from creation and work his way into the gospel by talking about Jesus. Skip down to verse um, uh, 31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world, talking about God, will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So when he talks to Gentiles, he begins with the truth of creation and works his way down to talking about Jesus. And may have you know used some scripture to do that when he did that, probably did, but he begins with creation with the Jews, 
goes straight to the Old Testament. With the Gentiles, he begins with creation. So there is the light of creation. We saw there in, in Romans 1 that everyone has that light that um, this world was created. Who did it? Who made it? Who created it? Why is it here? Chapter 2 of uh, back to Romans. This is the, this, uh, another one. <clears throat> Chapter 2, and that is the light of conscience. Both Jew and Gentile have this light. Um, Chapter 2, verse 15 and verse 16, right after it. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So notice here you see it says the work of the law written in their hearts. So he's talking about Gentiles here again, and the law that he's talking about is not the Old Testament law. They didn't know the Old Testament law. What is the law? It's the law of conscience. Because they were born with a conscience to know right and wrong. And it says there, their conscience um, bearing witness, their thoughts. Thoughts are part of your conscience. Meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. In other words, their conscience sometimes may accuse them, you're doing something wrong. And then in their mind, they may justify it and say, well, yeah, I'm doing something wrong, but it's not as bad as somebody else. That's when the conscience starts to get darkened. But we do have a conscience. And then ultimately, verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That conscience, when a, a lost person stands before God and says, well, I didn't know, God says, well, God will tell him, look, you knew for one reason, uh, you knew about me because of the creation. And you knew about me because of your conscience. And so whenever they stand before God, that they won't be able to deny that. Um, you don't have to turn there, but you're going to write down this reference. Um, Conscience is seen all through the scripture. When Abraham, before his name was changed, it was still Abram. And Sarah, before her name was changed, she was Sarai. They, um, they were, one day they were around uh, a heathen king. And he saw them. Uh, Abraham had, Abram had told him that they were brother and sister. Now, technically, they were related through their fathers. Uh, it's kind of like cousins, of distant cousins. But he, he, you know, he lied and said that Sarah's my sister. And so um, he, he, that king believed him, and then he saw them out. The scripture says they were kind of sporting one of those. They were flirting around, I guess, you know, and, and, and maybe hugging her or something, you know. And so he saw that, and Abimelech was his name. And so he knew then, well, this is apparently this man's wife. He was, he was going to call Sarah to come. He was going to try to woo her himself. And so he realized this is this man's wife. This was a heathen king, Abimelech, in a heathen country. All right. Not even and the, the Old Testament law hadn't been written. The, um, the law of, the, of Moses of the, uh, the what we know as the Ten Commandments, that hadn't even been written. Uh, wouldn't be written until much later. So but in his conscience, he knew something. So people say, well, how much do the heathen know? Well, I don't know, but their conscience, they know a whole lot more than we think they do. And so people in their mind, uh, you never know what they're thinking about God. That's why it's important to witness to anybody we can. You never know what they're thinking about. They may be looking for the answer, and probably are, the only answer, that, and we certainly know what it is. Clarence Larkin in his book, Dispensational Truth, said, Conscience may produce fear and remorse, but it will not keep men from doing wrong. For conscience imparts no power, but the Holy Spirit imparts power and begets hope. So in the believer, we have our conscience still. It's not like you don't have your conscience when you're, after you're saved, but we have something that, that works on our conscience called the Holy Spirit. And so we have that. And the unsaved, they do not. Light received brings more light. 
Light rejected brings darkness. And so uh, Paul is saying all the world is guilty because they have the, the witness, the testimony of, of uh, creation. They have also the light of conscience. They have both of those lights. And so with those lights, uh, a person should, should go uh, you know, and try to find uh, the answers they're looking for through both of those things. That's the job of the church. That's the job of Christians. That's the job of missionaries is to get the gospel to people who, uh, who so desperately need it. Uh, chapter 3, the need for salvation. We talked about all the world is guilty. The prototype for salvation is Abraham. Abraham is the one we look to as we call him a father of faith. Go to chapter 4. I think I have these references written down somewhere else. Look at chapter 4 starting at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Now he's quoting here from um, uh, the book of Genesis where Abraham believes God, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So Abraham is the beginning of the Jewish race, physical race. Physical people that will one day get a physical land. He's also, quote unquote, the father of us as believers in the sense of faith. A spiritual, for a spiritual people, the church. We don't get land. That's for Israel. We get the blessings of, uh, 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 that are found, us in, found for us in Christ in, in heavenly places one day. We'll enjoy that to its fullest. But it's a spiritual. So Abraham... Um, he's called a, uh, a father. He's a father to the Jews in the sense of, you know, it was through his seed, his descendants was Israel. But for us, his example he leaves is faith. He believed God and God said, you believe what I say? I'm going to give you my very righteousness because you believe what I said. Abraham was an imperfect man just as we're imperfect. Abraham believed God just as anybody who believes God. God says, I'm going to give you my son's righteousness. If you believe the gospel, I'll give you my son's very righteousness. Then there are requirements and the results of salvation, and that, of course, is faith. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So the only requirement for salvation is faith or believing in Jesus Christ. And the results of it, it tells us these wonderful promises in chapter 5 um, that we are reconciled to God. Verse 10 we once were enemies, now we're reconciled to God. Um, the, um, let's see, uh, 13, for until the law was in the world, um, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And rather than having sin imputed or placed to our account, we have the very righteousness of God placed to our account. Um, down for, starting at verse 15, down to verse um, 16 and 17, over and over, a couple of places, the free gift, the gift, the gift of righteousness. So um, these are the bless, some of the blessings of salvation found in chapter 5. So there are four great words in the book of Romans. Uh, there are more than that, but there are at least there are four specifically found right here in chapter 5 and right in this neck of the woods of, of the book of Romans from th about 3 to 5, those chapters. One is the word salvation. One is the word justification. One is the word redemption, and the one is the word reconciliation. There's a couple others too, but I just wanted to mention these. Salvation means God, the word to salvation, to save something means you're delivered. The word to save means to deliver, 
actually is what, it, what it, the broadest definition of salvation. So from what are we delivered? When we trust Jesus Christ to say, we're delivered from the penalty of sin now. We're delivered from hell. We're not going to go to hell. We trust Christ as Savior. So we're delivered. We're given salvation in three tenses. Past tense and for eternity, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We trust Jesus Christ as Savior. That, that sin penalty is paid in full. We've trusted it. He's already paid it, but we received the, the, the benefit of that payment when we trust Him as Savior. That's what we get eternal life. We're born again. We're saved. And so we're delivered from the penalty of sin once and for all. We're being delivered present tense, from the power of sin. We'll get to that in just a moment. We'll get to the next few chapters. That's our present daily walk. We're being delivered from the power of sin. We know that we haven't completely been delivered from the power of sin because we still sin, right? Whether it's in thought or word or action or whatever we do. One day, we'll get that third tense of salvation, deliverance. We'll be delivered, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We'll no longer be, in the, uh, be anywhere where sin will be. We'll be in God's presence, we'll be with our Savior, we'll be in heaven where there is no sin. And we'll be with Him, and, uh, and with him for eternity, so there'll be no sin there. So future tense, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Penalty of sin, uh, it's, it's, um, it happened in the past and it's good forever. Power of sin, that's a daily present thing. And then from the presence of sin, the future and for eternity. Justification is where God declares the believing sinner. We saw that Abraham was justified by faith, right? He said, the Bible says, God said to Abraham, you believe me, I'm going to give you my righteousness. God declares the believing sinner righteous the moment they believe in Christ. The very moment Jesus told uh Nicodemus is what we call being born again. It's a moment in time. It's a second in time. The moment we place our faith in Christ, we're born again. We're given uh, salvation and we are justified. We're declared righteous, not made righteous, declared righteous, even while in a sinning state because it's based on the finished work of Christ, not on what we do. Justification is a great word. It's found a lot in Romans and it's one of the great themes in Romans to study. Great word. Um, word study sometimes. These other two I put on the same slide. Redemption simply means the believing sinner is purchased by the blood of Christ. To be redeemed means that you're paid for, you're purchased, you're bought. Um, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Uh, we've not ourselves, uh, we're um, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. So we're redeemed. Uh, another word is reconciliation, to reconcile. To reconcile something, in fact, if you're still right there at chapter 5, it's in uh, verse um, 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled uh, to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So we're reconciled. That's where... Um, Two enemies um, make an agreement, and they settle their differences. And two enemies are now two friends. Um, and so once we were an enemy of God because we were sinners without Christ, without hope, but when we trust Christ as Savior, the believing sinners entered into the peace of God because of Christ's righteousness. We have His peace. In chapter 5, verse 1, uh, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is, we're no longer made, uh, uh, we're no longer enemies. We're no longer at enmity uh, against him. 
We we have been reconciled. So those are four of the key words in Romans. They're great studies, every one of them. And those are just some uh, definitions to help you on that. Chapter 6 tells us, remember we said chapter 6, 7, and 8 were the the chapters about... um, the, the blessings or the, the blessings of, of salvation and how through Christ we have victory, these chapters tell us. So we're saved already from the penalty of sin, as chapters three, four, and five. Now these verses or these chapters talk about how we're being saved from the power of sin daily in our walk. Look at Romans six, verse one and two. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, God's grace is far greater than our sin. We have a song or two we sing that have those words. It's greater than our sin. Certainly it is. But Paul says, do we continue in that just so we'll get grace from God? He says, God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul says, look, it's not, it's not a matter anymore of saying, you know, now I'm saved, so I'll live any way I want to. You don't have to live that way. You, you, now you, we can live the way he wants us to. Because of grace, grace that saves us, empowers and enables us to live victoriously. And we don't have to say, oh, well, I sinned, there's God's grace. Yeah, God's grace is there, but the grace that forgives us is also the grace that will give us victory. Skip down to verse, um, skip down to verse 13. Um, verse 11 through verse 13. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye shall obey it in the lust thereof. In other words, you don't have to, to give in to, to, um, to, to sin and its temptation. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. That's the negative. Now he puts it in the positive. But... Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. See, before Romans 3, 4, and 5, we couldn't do that. Well, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't enjoy that victory because there was none until we get to Romans 3, 4, and 5 that tells us what salvation is and that we can be saved. We trust Christ as Savior. Now we have within us the ability given by God to be victorious, to overcome sin. And then chapter 7 shows us the whole problem itself, that sin, that temptation we have, is rooted in this old sin nature. I won't read the whole section for time's sake, but look at chapter 7, starting verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. So when, when I was growing up as a kid, I remember hearing in Sunday school, and in, uh, I, we used to have training you know, on Sunday afternoons at church I went to, Southern Baptist Church used to do training union. And I remember in Sunday school and training union, even pastors in sermons would say, there are sins of omission and there's sins of commission, something you commit. That's good theology, though, because there are things that we don't do that we should do. Those are sins of omission. We omit those things that we should do. Then there are sins of commission, things that we do that we shouldn't do. Um, it's like the, it's like in Sunday school. I heard this joke with this little boy one time. The teacher was trying to get that point across and said, uh, "What's the ten? What's the sin of omission?" And one little boy raised his hand and said, "Those are the sins we're supposed to do and we didn't do them." That's not quite the way you define that. But anyway, you know what my point. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 not doing the things we should do. But that's what Paul he says that he comes right out of the box in verse 15 and says, "The things that I do, I don't want to do, but what I would." That I'm not doing those things, the things I want to do and should do. But what I hate, I end up doing. 
Um, look at verse 18. Here's the key to it. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, this old nature that was there before we got saved, is there the moment we got saved, it'll be there till death of the rapture. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And so chapter 7 defines that problem. That's the whole problem. Sin is rooted there in our old nature. And even though it need not have dominion over us, chapter 6, chapter 7 shows us the reality. That's why it does when it does. Then chapter 8, we see how sin's power is controlled and conquered by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 8. Let's see. Pick up at verse... Uh, 13. Let's pick up verse 13 for right now. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. Notice it doesn't say the body, the deeds of the body. Mortify, mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so uh, chapter 8, uh, most of that chapter talks to us uh, and gives us the wonderful promise of victory through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6 and 7, the Holy Spirit's only referred to a handful of times. In chapter 8, verse 1 to about 15 or 16, he's mentioned about a dozen or more times alone in, in just that half a chapter, or less than half a chapter, just amazing. Um, but that's what that chapter is about. It's about victory. And that victory comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Moving on. Chapter 9, Israel's past election or their choosing. We'll come back to that in just a second. Chapter 10, it moves on to Israel's present rejection. And chapter 11, their future restoration. So Paul, after he finishes talking about um, you know, the world's guilty, we're all sinners, salvation is through Christ, and after we're saved we can get victory, all of a sudden there's this, there's this gear change. And he talks about Israel and it tells us in the book of Romans, God's not finished with Israel. It seems like he might seem that he is, but he's not finished with them. They've just been put on the shelf for a while. And uh, he'll one day again deal with them. I mentioned in chapter 9, it talks about Israel's past election. The word election is a word choosing. Now, you'll hear this, those who, um, those who are Calvinists, they'll throw this word around a lot. Now, it's a Bible word. Don't get me wrong. Election is a biblical, it's a Bible word. It's, it's not that it's not in the Bible. It's certainly there. But Calvinists will take election to mean something that Scripture doesn't mean. It'll make it mean something else. Simply means choosing. And so um, this is a verse that Calvinists like to go to, chapter 9, verse 13, where the Scripture tells us here, As is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now he's quoting that from back in the book of Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, chapter 1 and verse, uh, I think it's verse 2, verse 3 right in there is where that is found. He's quoting from Malachi. And so there are those that say, well, um, there's some that God loves and he's going to save them. There's some that God hates and they'll never be saved. That's not at all what this verse is saying in any way. And that's making it mean something it doesn't mean. It does say, Jacob have I loved. It does say, Esau have I hated. It does. But there's a reason why it says that. God is not uh, condemning Esau as a person. He's not condemning him personally there. Esau here is a nation, not, I put, it, I put the quote of the comma in the wrong place, English teacher, I should have put after nation. Uh, nation should be comma there. 
not an individual. You'll, we'll see that in just a moment. The loved part means that God chose, He elected Jacob or Israel to be. Jacob is the one through whom the promise would come. Through Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is the 12 tribes. God chose, He had to choose somebody through whom the 12 tribes would come, and He chose Jacob. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. And so He chose him rather than Esau. So it doesn't mean that God personally hated Esau and only loved Jacob. It means that God simply chose Jacob. Through him were the, the sons that were to be the, the, the uh, 12 tribes. And the promise would come of the Messiah through the tribe of Judah. And so the, that's what the loved part means. Look, at, we, saw, uh, we talked about Malachi. Go with me for just a second to uh, Genesis for just a moment. I know we need to move on. Don't want to get bogged down. We hadn't even got quite halfway through the book, but we won't be this bogged down. 36, Genesis 36. Look with me at uh, verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. So when it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, he's talking about the fact that he chose Jacob over Esau. And Esau is who? He's Edom. Remember the Edomites, right? So um, Jacob is a true, you know, descendant of, uh, well, both of them were descendants of uh, Isaac, but through Jacob was a seed in which it was chosen. All right, chapter 36, verse 8. Uh, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Chapter 36, verse 19. Um, These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom. Verse 43. Uh, he names some of the dukes of the uh, different parts of the, of the family of, of Edom, their, the descendants. These be the dukes of Edom, according to the habitations and the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Over and over and over, God makes it very clear. Esau is Edom. That is, his descendants are Edom. So what it's telling us in, in Romans chapter 9 is not that God said, I'm choosing this group. To go to heaven, this group go to hell. No, he's choosing, but he was choosing Jacob. Through Jacob would be the 12 tribes. His promise had to come through somebody. It just wasn't Esau who ended up being Edom. So God makes that very clear there. And then there's some other references also. Psalm 47, 4 and Isaiah 45, verse 4 talks about uh, the excellency of Jacob, whom he's chosen, whom he, he loves. It's not that he didn't love Esau. He had a calling, a choosing on Jacob's life. There's some other verses in there too, but it'd be too much to go into uh, tonight as far as talking about Calvinism. All right, then you get to uh, chapter 12. We, 9, 10, 11 is Israel past, present, future. Um, then you get to 12, and he goes into practical Christian living from here on out. These next five chapters are just, especially 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 has some in there, but we'll see 16 has uh, some greetings as he's, as he's closing his letter. But chapter 12, very practical book. He gives us the pathway to blessing for a believer. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, great verses to memorize. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is for the believer. This is how a Christian can be successful in Christian life, can be happy in the Christian life, joyful. The way to blessing in the Christian life is obeying verse 1 and then verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Um, Don't let the world make you what they are. 
Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Notice he doesn't say by the renewing of your heart. He says by the renewing of your mind. Mind controls a lot of things. Mind controls our heart in a lot of ways. Mind has a lot to do with the things we see, the things we hear, the things we say. And then also um, the opposite, the things that, um, that, that are presented to us from, from our surroundings. But he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform, um, I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew, a little Greek has a sandwich shop, the Hebrew owns it. That's just a bad joke. But anyway, so the, the, the actually, um, in, in Greek can sometimes be helpful. The word for transform there is the same word. If you ever took science in middle school or biology, there's a, there's a word called metamorphosis. And so what metamorphosis is, is you see in the spring and summer, you see those caterpillars that are, that are inchworming around, you know, then they go into this cocoon. And then after a period of time, that cocoon breaks open and out comes this beautiful butterfly. That's what's called from science world, uh, um, which really is, is biblical too. It, it's uh, simply called a metamorphosis. Well, the Lord tells us that in our minds to not be conformed to the way the world thinks, because the more you think like them, the more you're going to act like them. The old saying, garbage in, garbage out. The more you think like them, the more you act like them. He says, no, you're, we're believers we can be transformed by renewing our mind to think differently, to think biblically, to think spiritually, to think in the terms that, that um, um, well, if you want to use this phrase, people use this, I think, sometimes a little too far the wrong way, but what would Jesus do? How would Jesus do this? What does, does the Scripture have to say about it? Ask yourself those questions. That you may, here it is, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is the pathway to blessing for the believer. Then you pick up at chapter 12, verse 3 to 16. And uh, earlier this year, I preached some messages from this passage. And it talks about the local body of believers and spiritual gifts. And it lists seven of those in those, um, in those verses. And down through verse number 16, it talks about the gifts themselves and how believers should uh, behave toward one another in the body of Christ. Uh, the verses, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the gifts end at verse um, uh, number 8. And then from 9 to 16, he gives some very you know, concise, practical ways as the body of Christ to behave toward each other. And then chapter 12, the same chapter, verse 17 to 21, the Christian and society. How we should behave not only towards brothers and sisters in Christ, but toward the world. In fact, the Bible says... Um, to, to verse, um, well, look at verse 18. Here's a, here's a key one. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And the all men there means, means not just, you know, the body of Christ, but everybody. As much as you can. People, a neighbor that may get on your nerves, or somebody at work that may get on your nerves, or somebody that, that you know that you run into once in a while that you'd rather, you know, go the other way. The, just live peaceably with them as much as possible. Um, so it closes out that in chapter 12. Very practical section chapter 12 through 16. Then we get to chapter 13. We're going to take the scenic route. It talks about the responsibility of the government and the believer, our responsibility toward the government. I didn't put that in that outline, but um, it's, it's both sides of that. Chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So we as believers in Jesus Christ... 
Um, we are to be good citizens uh, as much as we can, as, po- as, as much as is possible, unless you know, some rule, some law, some ordinance is made that goes against Scripture, then we obey God, not men. But we're to, as much as we can, it just, it, we just looked at that verse about living you know, peaceably with all men in chapter 12, uh, we're, under, you know, we're to be subject to the higher powers. You know, if they do something that's wrong or ungodly, then, you know, we leave them out, you know, to, to dry, so to speak. But uh, we're to obey. Verse 2, whosoever resists the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall re- re- receive to themselves. Now, this is not eternal. This is temporary, but there's the word damnation. Damnation or to condemn is another word. doesn't always mean eternal. Sometimes it does. But it's saying there's going to be judgment if we don't do that. Uh, if we resist, you go out and break a law, just like if a lost person goes out and breaks the law, you're under obligation because of that to you may get arrested. You may get pulled over for speeding, just like a lost person would. If you, do, if you break the law, if you rob a bank, you know, then you'll, you'll receive the, you know, the, what the law says is to be the, um, the, the penalty, the punishment for that. Uh, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Now, I wish that applied all the way across the board. It's supposed to be spiritually and scripturally, but we know in reality <laughs> that's what it's supposed to be. But when we look in our world, that's not always the case. In fact, we live in a nation where more and more laws are made or at least twisted to be mean uh, you know, against believers. And, and it's that way. And it's that way in some countries, you know, on, on steroids. I mean, just the worst it can be, where many of them even mention the name of Jesus, that at best they'll be imprisoned. Uh, but it says in verse 4, he's the minister of God. Isn't that interesting? God calls those who are uh, in authority in the government ministers of God. Isn't that an interesting thing? Uh, to thee for good. But, verse 4, if you do what is evil, be afraid. Um, and uh, he's a minister to, to re- revenge, execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And uh, it says he bears not the sword in vain. Uh, we don't have time for it tonight, but the uh, parallel passage that is in 1 Peter 2, verse 13 to 17, this says government, basically the scope and limit of government is two major things. We, in our world, in our nation, it's got so domino effect through the years. Um, th- through bigger government, bigger government means more control of people and more taxes and all that. Um, and making all these laws and rules. Uh, but the two basic purposes for government in 1 Peter 2 says that they are to reward what is good and to punish what is evil. Now, sometimes they do that number two, but you don't see that first one very often, do you? Uh, they, they sometimes punish evil if they don't let it go or close a blind eye, uh, but they rarely you know, reward what is good. But nevertheless, that's what Scripture says, and it's found here also in Romans, especially the part about punishing evil. Capital punishment is, is, is um, all through, through Scripture. In Genesis 9, verse 6, before the Old Testament law was written, when Noah got off the ark, um, now specifically there in that verse is talking about capital punishment for murder. Um, capital punishment, Exodus 21, also for murder, but for other things under the Old Testament law, if you're a Jew. Uh, and then in the New Testament, chapter 13, verse 4, which I think I skipped, he's a minister of God, uh, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. That sword's not to tap you on the shoulder. That's to, you know, to execute, uh, and that's what they did. And, of course, they went to the further extreme, and they executed believers like later on Paul. But nevertheless, capital punishment is found uh, in the Scripture. There's some other verses too, but 
Those just accompany that verse. Chapter 13, picking up verse 8 through verse 14, um, talk about the believer and our testimony uh, before the world. Uh, some of these verses on, in that passage go kind of along with the end of tap, chapter 12, those, those last few verses. But it talks about our testimony before the, uh, uh, the world especially. Then chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, all of chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 7, talks about the believer and fellow believers, um, how we are to uh, act towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it says in chapter 14 that we're not to... Um, um, that we are to, um, to, to remember that everything that we do, uh, we're going to stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ. And there, then verse 14, or excuse me, 13, tells us we're not to put a stumbling block in our brother's way. In other words, something that may cause a brother, especially a weaker brother, to stumble in their faith. And then it goes into chapter 15. It says, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. So uh, verse one to se- uh, chapter 40, verse 1 to 15, 7 Talk about the believer and fellow believers. Then chapter 15, starting in verse 8 to the end of the book, end of chapter 16, Paul gives some personal encouragement and some personal greetings. Um, he says in, um, let's see, let's look at a little bit about personal encouragement. Um, look at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15 and 16. Uh, nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort is putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, um, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ that were Gentiles, as well as those that were the brothers and sisters in Christ that were Jews. And then he goes and uh, gives some personal greetings uh, later on that chapter, and through most of chapter 16, he does the same thing, uh, gives some, some greetings. Okay, here's some uh, tune-up verses. In chapter 3, verse 4, when he's talking about Israel, or excuse me, talking about the world, uh, everybody being guilty before God and, and so forth, it says, let God be true, but every man a liar. We know that God's always going to say what's true. He's going to give us truth and um, when people do not, and often do not, but God's always going to be true. In chapter 5, verse 11, we, we talked about some of the verse of words that are important about salvation, redemption, justification. There's another word that's found only one time in the New Testament, and that's the word atonement. Um, it goes back to the Old Testament idea of where when the priest would, would slay an animal uh, um, you know, to be offered sacrifice, that was an atonement for the, for the sins of that person or the family, or once a year for the whole nation of Israel, Made an, uh, they have a day, in fact, called the Day of Atonement, in which there's an animal uh, uh, offered, uh, usually a you know, bullock or a, or a um, goat or something, that's offered up in atonement for sin. Atonement, if you take those words and break it down, that one word and break it down, it means to at one meant. That it means that because of that sacrifice that was pleasing to God, um, they could be in fellowship with God. Interesting thing. 81 times in the Old Testament, you see the word atonement. You only see it once in the New Testament because Jesus is our atonement. It says in chapter 5, verse 11, And not only we so, but we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We're brought into relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We're made right through Him. It's only had to be mentioned one time because He made a one-time offering. Anyway, chapter 6, verse 1 to 2 
Uh, we said it was a key to victory. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We're, we're dead to sin. We don't have to live in, in that. The Christian's main event, chapter 7, verse 18, the flesh, this old flesh. Chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Most people have memorized verse 28, but also memorized verse 29. Because the Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, verse 29, He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. So God works all those things in our life for a lot of reasons maybe. Maybe it's to trust Him more. But ultimately, He's conforming, He's making us like Jesus Christ. He's making us like His Son. Um, chapter 11, verse 33 says that how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Um, chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, how to know God's will. We looked at that one. Chapter 14, verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ. I preached about that Sunday morning, a second message about it. And then chapter 15, verse 4 says the things that were written in the past were written for our learning and our admonition. Look at chapter 16 as we close, get ready to close out um, these verses here. Tune up. 16, verse 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And um, by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, most pastors would tell you, and I, I would stand right there in front of all of them, it's no pleasant thing to point out people that teach false doctrine and name their names, especially when people read their books and they're fond of them. And I understand that. Please don't get me wrong. And there, some, some people have some good stuff maybe, but when they're teaching something that's false doctrine, you have to point it out. You have to make it known. When somebody says, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, man, a, a, a flag needs to go up for every Christian. I, I know that guy is very special to a lot of people, and we have people in our church, they have kids that go to his church. I understand that, but folks, that is false doctrine. It doesn't matter who said it. It's still false doctrine, and you have to point it out. That's not pleasant. That's not something I love to do, but it's true nevertheless. And it says in Scripture that they're not serving the Lord, they're serving themselves. And it says, watch out, because they're going to give you some really sweet words. They're going to say things that sound really good, but they're full of error. They're full of um, doctrinal error. And so Paul closes with all his greetings and everything. He sandwiches that right in there. He says, look, you, you've got to watch out for that. You've got to be very, very careful. He says, mark them. In other words, to mark something means if you're... If you're counting something, you're writing it down. You're, make, you're making a mark. You know, um, uh, my dad years ago when I was a kid, he'd ask about grades. You make good marks. You know, the, you, the things you write down, you're learning, right? So you have to just you have to consciously remember and realize that there are those who are teaching false doctrine, and you have to mark. You have to keep an, a, a mental account of that and remember that. Anyway, let's move on. In the book of Romans, Jesus is called Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, and there, you know, he's, he's called Christ in some places, or Jesus, or Jesus Christ, but he's mentioned as Lord. Why? Because now, as Paul writes this, he's a risen Savior. He's risen from the dead, and he is Lord of all, Acts tells us. Um, it's, you, nobody makes Jesus Lord. Uh, you hear some false teaching, well, you've got to make Jesus Lord. You're like, i got news for you, he's already your Lord. If you're saved, he is your Lord, um, no matter what you do or what you don't do. Um, there's none righteous, no, not one. These verses are about salvation. We'll close with these. These are the home address. 
There are none, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These are great verses when you witness to somebody and give the gospel to them. Some people call them the Romans road. Uh, chapter 5, verse 8, but God commended his love toward us. God proved it. God showed it. He demonstrated. He showed it. He took his great big billboard of the universe and said, look, I've sent my son for you. And look how, look how, his, uh, how his love for you spreads. It goes from east to west as both his arms are on the cross for you and for me. He commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Death, uh, chapter 5, verse 12, death hath passed upon all men for all have sinned. But the gift of God is, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 23, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, let's stop there uh, tonight. Lord, when will we be in 1 Corinthians next week? Whew. Any questions or any comments? Anything tonight? There's a lot in Romans, isn't there? Well, there's going to be more in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot in that book too. So, But I love Romans. Romans is, uh, you can just camp out. Romans have a great time. It's a great book. Okay, let's stand and close in prayer and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for each one here tonight. And I pray for those who aren't feeling well, those who aren't able to be here tonight. And I pray for those, Lord, who listen to this, uh, of our church family or others that will listen and uh, go through this study with us. I thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for, as we saw at the beginning, many have called it the um, the Declaration of Independence and the um, the, the, all the, uh, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution for the Believer, and how we, through faith in our Savior and because of His great work, we learn in Romans the things that He did to save us. And then we learn in Romans, because we're saved, the things that we can do as believers and we should do as believers to live in obedience to You and to live a life pleasing to You and a life that will be a testimony before saved and lost alike. And we thank You, Lord, for the power of Your Word and may May we learn from these great doctrinal truths in the book of Romans. Pray that you'll keep us safe as we leave from here tonight, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.